Hello, my name is Samuel George London and welcome to Comics for the Apocalypse. On today's episode, I speak to comic book writer and very nice chap, Nick Bryan, about what comics he would take into the apocalypse. But before we get into it, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Comic Scene. An award-winning magazine, Comic Scene is available digitally and in print in the UK, Ireland, Australia, Canada and the good old USA at www.getmycomics.com forward slash comic scene. Also, if you enjoy today's episode, please leave a review for us on iTunes or whichever podcast service you use, as it really helps other podcast listeners discover the show. Now, without further ado, on with the show. Hello, Nick Bryan. How's it going? It's going about thanks. I'm in my chair, where I now basically live, sort of writing my comics and doing my job. <laughs> don't we all? Don't we all? Just kind of melting into our uh, office chairs, basically. Yeah, yeah, no, my office have decided they like working from home so much we're doing it all the time now. So this chair is now an extension of my body, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's uh, it's going to be interesting how we evolve over the next um, couple of decades, I think. Um, maybe we're going to become even even more kind of, you know, arch-backed and things like that. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's just going to be, I don't know, it's definitely a big step towards the, the possible future scene in WALL-E, I suspect. But... <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly that's that's uh probably gonna come true at some point um in the in the relatively near future um now uh for for anybody that hasn't come across you just yet nick uh what do you do in the world of comics uh, i'm a writer i've been writing well i've been writing since i was about 18 which is some years ago now and i and mm-hmm. i've released a series of self-published novels called hobson and Choi, and then having sort of put it off for a few years, partly from nerves and partly because I didn't at the time have funds spare to pay artists, I decided to finally launch myself into comics in 2018 because that was always what I really wanted to do anyway. You know, prose was kind of a stepping stone. So I started with a few like shorter stories. They're taking one of the most sort of oft given out bits of comics advice, which is, you know, start small, don't go straight into your your massive epic. Go with something that has a beginning, middle and end that you can actually finish. So I did a run of like shorter stories, like between one and like, I think the longest was five, maybe six pages, which I sort of compiled into a collection, which is called Comedy and Errors, which is still available on the internet. And then I went into some uh, one shots, which I guess I'm still doing that series. Yeah, I did a couple of black and white one shots with Rosie Alexander and Lucas Peverell. And now the the new one, uh, And It Snowed with Rob Ahmed, which is on Kickstarter now right now um and uh as as this is going live is it just a few days left so folks go check it out um and uh and it snowed it's called yeah and it snowed it's a sort of urban fantasy crime fable it's about two sort of desperate people who are trying to steal a mysterious artifact to appease this loan shark who they owe their lives to and only to find that the artifact is owned by jack frost so he's and who sort of chases them through this snowy london and they end up sort of trapped between them it's a sort of long emotional night of the night of the soul experience so yeah it's it's really good uh rob ahmed is very good at like well he's very good at like cityscapes and urban yes. stuff and he's very good at looks great character emotion so i was very much wanted to give him you know something that led heavily on both those things and i think it came out really well 
Definitely, it looks absolutely fantastic. I can't wait wait to receive my copy. Um, and uh, yeah, where, where did that inspiration for that story come from? Uh, and it snowed. There was, to an extent, it, a lot of it was almost real life. I mean, right. I mean, I haven't met Jack Frost myself. I'm sure he's a good dude. You haven't? But I haven't. No, I can't. <laughs> oh. I thought he's all right. Maybe thought I had a couple of times, but no. Um, yeah. yeah, I found myself wandering home from the pub in the snow and it's in in london it's yeah it's, it's all quite little and i just yeah you get a lot of time to yourself in that situation apart from the occasional fellow staggering drunk and you just end up thinking about sort of the empty loneliness of this and how this could all go wrong quite easily obviously still here but it could all <laughs> go wrong and so i at some point i did actually think especially when i was trying to, i was talking to rob about doing another project but it would be quite a good setting for him and so yeah, I think that's the first evolution. There is an early draft of the script somewhere, which is quite aggressively like real world literal. It is about a man trying to get home from the pub in the snow. But I just sort of, <laughs> I just could, I just didn't seem like it drew on the possibilities enough. I felt like I could do more with it. So yeah, that's how we ended up with this sort of desperate crime story. Fantastic. And uh, yeah, folks, go search that on Kickstarter and it's snowed, um, or just click the link in the show notes. And uh, where else can people find you online? Uh, my main social network is probably Twitter. Yeah, I, I write, I like the words. So yeah, you can find me on Twitter as at NickMB. That's M for Matthew, B for Brian. And I'm also at NickBrian.com. And there's a comics page there where you can see quite a lot of those short stories I mentioned earlier, actually, are now just free online, mm. if you fancy a look. And you can sign up for my mailing list, which gives you a monthly newsletter from me. And I think you get a free PDF copy of my Comedy and Errors collection I mentioned. So yeah, plenty of stuff. Fantastic. And again, those links are in the show notes, folks. So go check it out whilst we speak. Uh, now, all of that aside, uh, I do have some bad news for you, Nick. And that is that there has been a robot uprising. Now, we don't know if it's anything to do with the Track and Trace app. It could be. <laughs> you never know. But um, there has been a robot uh, uprising. Um, and my first question for you is, what is your action plan for survival? Uh, I'm going to assume they're not as cute as Wally, are they? Um, Unfortunately not. <laughs> damn it. Well, I mean, you'd think an artificial intelligence would want to launch some sort of precise, carefully orchestrated takeover, sort of targeting key targets and threats and neutralising the power centres. So... <laughs> I've given it some thought. I think the action plan for survival really is to grab my partner and then go somewhere no sane person would ever want to go. Uh, to so ignoring bomb shelters, <laughs> government advertising, yeah, government advertised hiding places, major cities, anything mentioned on the track and trace app. So yeah, my <laughs> my, my obvious plan would be to, for us to run to the shore with all the food and comics, of course, that I can carry, S- steal the first available boats and attempt to sail to, to the North Pole single or double handedly sort of rowing if need be i feel like that they, they, they probably haven't planned for that and if they did see you doing it then the, they probably maybe correctly assume i'm probably gonna die so <laughs> i feel like, leave you to it i mean i mean to what extent that's an action plan for survival i don't know but it's it's i feel like it would <laughs> get me away plan. from the robots <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, that's fantastic. Um, so, on your way um, uh, in the boat to the North Pole. Um, so, you said you were you were with your wife, were you? Were you? Uh, my partner, yeah. My, your uh, partner, yes. Yes. Well, I'll. I'll she, we don't have kids, so it's not as if we have to work out how to care for children on the boat. So, we can probably it probably be useful for someone else to help row. To be honest. Definitely perfect. Um, and so, you and your partner are rowing in this boat, uh, and they ask you. Uh, 
the first question that they ask you trying to to just pass the time is uh, what's the first comic you remember enjoying there'll definitely be time to pass uh yeah my the first comic i remember enjoying was i worked a bit of a cliche for a creator of my age i think it like i've listened to past episodes of your show and other sort of interview shows with uk creators but yeah it's it's probably sonic the comic to be honest it was a sort of tidy gateway between Mm -hmm. a few sort of the kids comics over there but i was very young like the beano and like superhero stuff i think i get the feeling that for the generation before me it was often 2000 ad filling this role but i've get the feeling like yeah as i say from past guests you've had on and other podcasts but sonic the comic seems to have leapt into that gap for a lot of us filling that sort of space like oh i like i like comics i like mega drive yeah exactly it kind of it kind of creates a I don't know, um, a holy trinity of gaming, cartoons, and comics, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Um, and yeah, uh, yeah so you what age were you when, you when you picked up? Uh, I think I would have been about 10, 11, I think, sort of late primary school, early right. secondary school. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's all, they, yeah, they, it was a surprisingly dense thing, like the comic. It pushed its remit out to quite a lot of like, complicated drama and continuity like there were some really confusing time travel stories and stuff as i would try and convince my friends at the time yeah it's there's more to it than you think like they could have just you know pushed out fun stories where where pardon me where sonic bashes a robot and there there were a few like that but it's it became quite complicated there's some really lovely art in there and also some early mark miller work randomly when he was coming up he did some Sonic the comic stuff and yeah it's yeah, as I say, very few people were often convinced that Sonic the Comic was actually serious adult business. I, I seem to recall I had a copy confiscated from me by a teacher when I was about 13 who seemed to find it quite laughable that a 13-year-old student had such a thing. But no, I I stand by it. Sonic, Sonic the Comic was actually yeah, surprisingly enjoyable as comics aimed at 10-year-olds go. There's a there's another podcast, actually. Sorry to mention another podcast. It's cool, right? <laughs> Sonic the Comic, the podcast, which comes out every fortnight at the moment and goes through yes. an episode... Yeah, an issue every episode, and yeah, it's it's become a really sort of enjoyable like document of the era I grew up in. So yeah, I do get the feeling that we do seem to be coming to the point where Sonic the comic is officially the a cult the current, classic, the, the current point of yeah cult classic nostalgia. Like the, the people who love Sonic the comic are now the people making the culture. So we, we exactly we're going to hear about it more and more. I think I think soon Sonic the comic will be rightfully respected as a titan, and maybe they'll untangle whatever weird rights problems must surely exist and actually reprint some of them. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, now, at that time, um, were you just reading or were you trying to create your own stories as well? And were you drawing at all or just writing? <sighs> when I was 10, 11, um, I was actually going through my old bedroom at my mum's house a year or two back because she, she was moving. And I did actually find some old sort of rudimentary comics about sonic in a and a sort of there was a some sort of crossover feature with sonic and a character i'd made up i think possibly the comic was called fun attack and the character was called the fun attacker so it's amazing um, it's i i think he may have worn, worn a little zorro mask it was a stick man wearing a zorro mask my i like to think my writing skills have evolved a lot since i was 11 years old and reading sonic the comic but the drawing to be honest has stayed pretty static <laughs> fantastic um and then you you mentioned before that you kind of you really got into writing at 18 um and and, and what was that um 
it's a combination of sort of reading this, reading literary novels and classic novels of things I was forced to do for um, English lessons, and then yeah, I started to think hmm, I could do this, and I, I did actually write a whole novel which was somewhat inspired by. I think a lot of the comics I was reading, to be honest, about sort of everyday yeah. people getting superpowers. And that was when I was about mm-hmm. 18. And then, of course, about a year after I finally finished a sort of, I don't know, it probably wasn't very good, but it was semi-readable at least, sort of <laughs> finalist draft of it. Uh, they released the TV show Heroes. And I realised that if I showed this or sent it to anyone, I would look like a gigantic plagiarist. So <laughs> there was, it was, I think I, it, there were actually quite a lot of similarities between my teenage novel and Heroes. I do... I assume yeah. we were both influenced by the same superhero comics. Yeah. And they had they had the villain Scylar, and my villain was called Skylar. And I still, to this day, have not worked out who we were both Nuts, isn't it? borrowing from to come up with a, yeah. that exact combination of letters. Parallel thought is a funny thing. It's amazing kind of when people do come up with kind of things at the same, like similar things at the same time. I mean, that's obviously very similar. That's <laughs> crazy <laughs> similar. But yeah, there must have been something that you both had seen or read or something like that. Yeah, I've tried Googling it a couple of times, and I I don't know, I assume it's a villain from some obscure X-Men story or something, but I don't really know. Mm. I've never been able to fully work it out. But yeah, that, so that, that yeah, that was my first big writing project, I think. The I can't believe it's not Heroes novel. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, you were saying before that, yeah, you only really got into comics writing in 2018? Uh, I guess so. I think there were a few, yeah. again, a few aborted attempts when I was a teenager, but I didn't really, I don't know, I, I, I didn't really know where to go with it. I didn't really have any money to pay artists with until I, until relatively recently. And I, that, and, and yeah, I found it quite hard to just sit with it. But yeah, I eventually thought, okay, this is clearly the main writing thing I want to do. So yeah, at that point, time to get on with it. Fantastic. And uh, do do you feel that that's kind of one of the biggest barriers for writers is trying to find an artist? Um, I mean, I mean, certainly just at a raw practicality level, trying to obviously the fact that a lot of artists entirely justifiably want, want to be paid and, and yes. not everyone has money is, you know, one of these things that, you know, I can't, no, no one could just magic away. It's, it, it's not an easy thing to resolve. But yeah, I think that's probably the main thing. And also just the feeling that, I mean, I mean, even beyond just getting a script drawn, I mean, you'll also know as someone who's done it, self-publishing as an enterprise mm. is quite a big thing in itself. I mean, I've had yes. to learn a lot of using Adobe applications and working out how to promote myself and going mm. to conventions and actually selling from behind the table, which I'd never done before I started trying to do comics, which has all been, you know, things I've had to pick up. So it is obviously... Be- Especially now that there seems to be a, a, it seems to be generally the done thing that anyone trying to get into comics writing probably goes through this whole sort of one man publisher bit for at least a while before yeah. they get to any kind of publisher stage. There's a lot of extra stuff which has to be done, and you know, I'm doing it, but it is a lot to do, and again, a lot of it ends up costing money. Yeah, this is it. So it can be quite difficult. Um, I think there there are potentially other ways, but um, yeah, to actually kind of get started as as a writer um yeah that can that can be a, a massive barrier do you think you would have started earlier if you'd been able to have found a, an artist to do like a short story with that you could have done it either for tuppence or kind of like as a uh royalty sharing 
adventure. I don't know. I, don't know. I mean, it's, I don't know how much of it actually is. I couldn't have done it, and actually, or just me looking up and having abused myself writing the Hobson Choi books for about five or six years, thinking, ah, oh, I'm, I, I'm in my mid thirties. Time is passing by. If I want to do this, I should probably get on with it. You know, it's mm. probably a degree of that. But yeah, I think it would have been. I mean, I did have flirtations with chatting with people about doing stuff in some sort of profit sharing arrangement or just as a favor because they were friends but you know fairly enough they ended up getting occupied with other things that were more mm. important or better paid and it just didn't happen so yeah it's one of these things which would have been nice to have but i'm not that surprised but it took me till i could find a disposable income before it actually happened yeah definitely um definitely seems it seems the way um with a, with a lot of writers that we both meet at, at, at conventions um, and we all t- tend to kind of be in our mid thirties or around forties, kind of people that have just about got, got a little bit of disposable income to start this kind of venture. Um, but uh, I, that just kind of goes to show how passionate we are, I guess, that we're willing to kind of put that money into it, exactly. and, and rightly and rightly pay the artist <laughs> for for it. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, I could I could have invested in stocks and shares, but. Instead, I'm doing this. My my family appear supportive. <laughs> That's fantastic. And on that note, uh, the next question that comes up in the boat is: uh, What's the funniest comic that you've read? Um, I mean, a lot of comics I like have a, I guess I'd call it a sort of comedy element or a side note of comedy. Like the first comics I've ever really got into was sort of '90s work of the writer Christopher Priest, who is still around in the industry, but. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're doing bits and bobs but in the nine, late 90s early 2000s he did a run on a, a sort of buddy comedy drama series called quantum and woody which i really enjoyed and which i think influenced me more than i'd like to admit at times and then he did another he did a, a long run on black panther for marvel which i think has right. has ended up being quite influential influential in the movies i don't know if that's still happening i'd have to go and do a load of typing to check but i think mm. There were a load of free Black Panther comics on the Comicsology, weren't there? For like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, if you go to, it's possible, <laughs> maybe <laughs> by the time you hear this. But if you go to Comicsology and search Black Panther, you might be able to get the whole Christopher Priest run for free. And if you can, I do recommend it. It's both very good in the drama and comedy, and it does introduce a lot of core Black Panther concepts. But anyway, I'm, I'm, that's not actually my choice for this category. So. Yeah, the one I wanted to talk about was uh, Sex Criminals by mm-hmm. Matt Fraction and Chip Zdarsky because, yeah, for all that I enjoy a lot of comedy dramas, this is one that is just... Although it still has that dramatic underpinning, it's de- it's definitely more of a flat-out comedy. That There's just a lot of straight-up silliness and weird, over-the-top set- sex stuff that's... Yeah, I, I just find it hilarious. It's just a very, a very, very strange... Slightly self-indulgent, but in a good way. I, I, I'm a big fan of things that are self-indulgent in a good way. It's very obviously a very yes. hard, hard fence to sit on. That one, you know, it's quite easy to Definitely. self-indulge yourself off the other side. But yeah, I think sex, <laughs> sex criminals really nails it, and I really enjoy it. Does it really well? Definitely. Yeah, it's come up quite a few times um, in the, in this category uh, in particular. Um, and yeah, it's something that I've got to add to the uh, add to my. Uh, well, actually, read. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's on my reading list. I've just got to read it, um, and uh, yeah, it's just for just finding the time, really. Um, but uh, yeah, is there is is there any particular moment that kind of makes you laugh out loud, um, like when you come to think of it? 
there was a whole ridiculous sequence where, for some reason, I don't know why, I think this has become a bit of a sort of, what's the word? Signature sex criminals moment. There's a bit where they had to, um, they wanted to have the two characters dancing around a bar singing We Are The Champions. I think it's We Are The Champions. I know it's possibly Fat Bottom Girls, but they Mm. couldn't uh, get the rights from Queen for the song. No. So, and they, there's a whole sort of series of indulgent footnotes. Again, this is the sort of pretentious, slightly indulgent stuff I like. But <laughs> footnotes explaining that they couldn't get the rights to the song. They didn't want to have to think of another song because they felt it wasn't right for the sequence. So they've just kept the sequence the same, but blacked out all the lyrics with like census, black censorship bars. And it, and yeah, it's audacious if nothing else <laughs> that is that's fantastic i love that yeah that's that's actually something that i only found out um during the process of of uh, making project hoax was the yeah. fact that you can't use a song's lyrics within a comic book i don't know if it's the same for novels um I... but certainly in comic books you can't because yeah you have to have the rights no, it's, it's basically the same yeah i've done like creative writing courses and stuff. And one of the things mm-hmm. they always say is, yeah, do not get any, too attached to any sequence that has mm-hmm. like a sizable chunk, like basically more than about a line or half a line of lyrics, because yeah. you will, the first thing get is, sued. You, <laughs> yeah, the first thing any like traditional publisher will say to you, if you give it to them is, yeah, we can't, we can't use this. Maybe if you were more famous, we might go and f- see if we could buy the rights. And, you know, maybe, maybe yeah. if you're lucky, you'll be, you'll have a, a splashy enough publisher or you'll be famous enough that they'll go and, you know, go to the artist and see how much they want and pay up for the mm. rights. I mean, apparently, as I say, apparently Fractions of he did at least look into it. But yeah, it's, I'm told it's very, very expensive. Oh, no doubt. Um, because I originally I'd put in Green Day lyrics for Basket Case at the beginning of Project Hoax because that's what I used to listen to when I was on my paper round. Yeah. Um my cassette player. Um and uh when I when I sent it to the editor, she was like, You know you can't use lyrics like that. Because <laughs> you have to pay for the rights. I was like, What? Oh my god, no way. <laughs> and so we so uh Dan ended up putting, just putting in kind of music notes um instead just to kind of keep it keep it simple. But uh yeah. <laughs> it's quite it's quite a, an enlightening moment, quite a shock, like when it's like, Oh no man. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Every time I do see someone use lyrics, I'm always a bit sort of, well, you, you went there. You must, have, you must have really wanted that moment. Fair <laughs> yeah, enough. Fair enough. Definitely. Fantastic. Uh, now, uh, moving on to our next question and changing gears a little bit. Um, what's the saddest comic that you've read? Yeah, I mean, I'm in a, a boat alone in the sea. I'm sure this comes up quite quickly. Uh, definitely. <laughs> uh, the saddest, the most upsetting is a Petrichor by Gareth A. Hopkins, which is a abstract comic, well, abstract graphic novel, I guess, that came out a couple mm. of years ago, where Gareth, against the sort of backdrop of abstract art, talks about a range of sort of seemingly disparate topics and anecdotes and weaves them together with a sort of series of common phrases and talks about his recent experiences with death and bringing up his kids and stuff. It's a very sort of confessional comic at times, I guess. He's very mm. good at sort of talking about things for the quite... I don't know. He often starts at quite relatable everyday stuff before rather than going in hard with the emotions, but it always sort of gets there in the end. It's I mean it's not actually, you know, wall to wall paid front to end sadness, you know. There is, you know, there there is joy as well. The second the second half especially does, you know, go go a bit more towards uplift. But yeah, it is the sad bits are still probably the saddest thing I've read in comics. 
in quite a while. So he made me cry on a train when I first read that. Oh, wow. In retrospect, I should not have read it on a train. <laughs> yeah, in front of everybody, it's like <laughs> in tears. Mm. It's okay. Yeah. So I, I've only tweeted the author to tell him about that. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of it's a, it's a triumphant moment for an author to to make a reader cry. I think, isn't it? Well, yeah, exactly. If someone's messaged me and said your work made me cry, I'd, I might, I might type some sort of apology. But really, I'd feel like, yes, okay, got you, yeah, nailed it. It's quite an accomplishment, <laughs> isn't it? Um, I've done it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And uh, no, I need to get Gareth on actually, and and speak to him more about abstract comics because he is a master of uh, of abstract comics. Um, and uh, just uh, on 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 this one in particular, um, how do you pronounce it, Petricor? Is it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, reading the the synopsis, um, do you, do you remember what that actually means, Petricor? Is it smell of grass in the morning or something? I used to know. This. Yeah, it's the, it's the smell of rain. Oh, that's the one. I like once it stopped, um, like the smell in the air. Um, I never knew that there was a term for it, but it's it's great to know that that term is out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very yeah. Well, it's a very sort of artful work it's there's a video a real sort of control of language as well like obviously Gareth gets a lot of attention for his art and deservedly it's lovely but I also think he his ability to pick like specific words like exact specific words often using them in a sort of slow repetition is also incredibly strong and it sort of goes together with all that fantastic uh, now uh, moving on once again uh, the next question that comes up is what's the scariest or most horrifying comic that you've read uh, the scariest, the most horrifying is a com is a recent dish comic called Ice Cream Man by W. Maxwell Prince and Martin Morazzo. It's a sort of series of everyday anecdotes, or sort of starting off as everyday anecdotes, which are sort of yeah, it's an anthology comic basically, and it's a series of stories is sort of around the same neighbourhood, all linked together by the lurking figure of this sort of sinister ice cream man, and it's one of these yeah, it sort of slowly unfolds. Like there's about twenty issues now. And the, the ice, a lot of them are just standalone stories with the ice cream man lurking in the background. And the more of it you read, the more it becomes sort of exciting. Like, you know, if you've been watching a show or reading a book or whatever, and there's been like this background character lurking and like every so often the, this lurking character comes closer to the foreground and you get a look into, you know, the, the horrifying things that they actually do or the terrifying world they actually come from or whatever. And then they sort of retreat again and come back later. And yeah, it's... It's great. I really, I really love that comic. It's one of my favourite kind of things. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's a little bit creepy, isn't it? Um, on one of the covers, you have got the ice cream man kind of like handing over a cone, and it just it feels sinister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really impressive how they sort of warp the ice cream man's figure. Like, I mean, I guess there's a extent to which you could quite easily make the concept of an ice cream man sinister, but by the way they sort of change his image as well and distorts the face and bring out the teeth and have him sort of reaching out of everything it's very yeah it's beautiful. very very chitty chitty bang bang <laughs> Isn't it? yeah I've... yeah it's kind of i don't know i guess it's kind of stephen kingish sometimes it sort of reminds yes. me of it but yeah it's 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 really really well done i'm i mean i don't think sort of issue broken down single issue by issue anthology comics historically would do that well so i'm very happy that ice cream man seems to be you know becoming a bit of a institution at the time like it's still going it seems to be if any picking up interest and support so yeah i'm really pleased that's it's a great, good sign it's a great book i really look, i buy it in the uh the trades the collections but i, I always really look nice. forward to them. 
Fantastic. Uh, now, moving on to my favourite question, and that is, what is your favourite cover? Uh, yeah, I honestly, I don't know if, from an art critic standpoint, this is the best cover ever drawn, but it's the it's kind of going back to childhood nostalgia, really. It's the first cover that ever got me to really stop and think, holy shit, that's a cool cover. Yeah. They've, they've arranged elements. Graphic design exists when I was quite young. <laughs> um, so, cool. Yeah, this is uh, Amazing Spider-Man 408 by Mark Bagley and Joe Rubenstein, which is from the oft-maligned, as much as I have nostalgia for, it's possibly fairly maligned, uh, Clone Saga storyline from Spider-Man, where, as you might see if you're a student of Spider-Man, he's wearing the slightly different costume that uh, Spider-Man's clone wore when he took over the, the, um, the suit. But yeah, he's it's a, story, it's a story that takes place in the snow and... Yeah, Ben Riley's Ben Riley, the clone Spider Man, it has just collapsed in the snow and the, the snow the page is just a white background with a few footprints leading to his collapsed body. And I just remembered picking that up because at that point I was in my later teens and was just buying all the Spider Man comics because he's my, my main superhero. And yeah, I just remember getting that one and it was the first comic that I think I'd read in the time I've been buying them, which made me sort of think, Wow, the the design. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's so, it's so it cool. How they, how, did they, how did they think to do this? It was really, yeah. I, it's in a, in a small way. It's it, it blew my tiny mind. What a great moment to to have a great memory to have. Um, that you know, whenever you see this, it can kind of take you back to to wherever you picked up a comic shop. I, I assume maybe a newsagent. No, I think because I lived in the middle of nowhere, um, and comic shops were. Were not feminine in suburban Essex when I grew up, <laughs> so we. I was. I. I think once I decided I wanted to read comics, I'd actually signed up to a mail order service, which sent them to you every month. So right. yeah, because it, it was either that or drive me to like Lakeside Shopping Centre, which was about half an hour, forty minutes away. Every mm. time I wanted to buy a comic, so my mum located the the old mailing service, uh, and yeah, it's. So yeah, I got this through the post and just stared at it for a while. It may, it may or may not have played a part in my decision to do a comic about snow now. Who knows? <laughs> we did actually, play, definitely. Yeah, I don't know. Me and Rob did look at the... I, I said Rob discover, but sort of it. <clears throat> we, could, we could do something a bit like this, but, I don't, but we settled on doing something else instead. As there's, there's still plenty of snow on the cover, but it's not quite using this exact gimmick. <laughs> because I don't know, I do love this cover, but I don't, I, I'd, I'd have felt bad. Yeah. Well, and it, it, it's, to, it's, it's pretty specific as well. Um, because obviously it feels like he's in the middle of nowhere. I don't know if that's the reality of the situation, but well, it's a sort of it's it was Spider Man fighting Mysterio in a sort of snowy New York. I was, I think, mm. one of those covers which is more an allegory of just Spider Man is doing badly in the snow than like yeah. any specific moments. Yeah, but, definitely. But yeah, it is quite specific. It's not, as I say, it's not a particularly, I don't think, famous, well remembered cover. Like, I think the only person I've ever seen mention this on Twitter is me. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think I've, I don't think it's a, a famous beloved work. But that just means that you know, if I if we did homage it, it would be fairly obvious we were homaging it. But you know, fair no, enough. It's, okay. a lovely, it's a lovely cover. It is because uh, obviously you got the Amazing Spider Man in the um, in the snow itself uh, at the at the top there, and as you say, he's got the footprints that are leading there, and I've just noticed that he seemingly his body is twisted. I don't know if you've noticed that because actually it's kind of his, his leg is at are, a bit of an angle, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, his, his neck's at an angle, but I think his waist is actually his uh, waist is is twisted. So his his legs are actually uh, front 
on the ground and then his body is twisted so that his chest is facing up. If you see, no, I, mean. no, I think that's the costume design. I think the, the Ben Riley Spider Man costume had the symbol on the back as well. That's 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 the clone. Ah, <laughs> right. Sorry. Yeah, that it's makes okay. sense. Okay, knowing the exact design of the Ben Riley Spider Man costume, I'm willing to accept <laughs> his quite specific knowledge. <laughs> yes, that is definitely. Um, no, that's uh, that's that's good to know though, because otherwise I was like, wow, he's like really twisted there, and he's got a really small waist. It's like a barley waste or something. Yeah, the fact that's just, you know, art style. <laughs> Fair play. Uh, no, that's cool, though. That's fantastic. Uh, now, uh, moving on to another favourite question, that is, uh, what's the most meaningful comic to you? Um, Sort of carrying on from the last one, and tempted to say the Spider-Man clone saga in some sort of semi-ironic way, but mm. I don't know. I like it. Got, it did a lot to get me into superhero comics, but in terms of ones I have emotional attachments to, it's probably Ultimate Spider-Man by Brian Bendis and again Mark Bagley. Uh, there's there is later stuff. Obviously, famously, this series much later introduced Miles Morales in the um the, the like third or fourth relaunch with Sarah Pacelli. But yeah, the the the, um, the Bagley stuff, the first like hundreds and a bit issues was miles but Spider-Man. Like it was a very, I don't know, it sort of took Spider-Man who I sort of knew as this adult character who went through all these crazy plot twists, you know, clones, etc. And it really, for me at least, grounded it quite a lot in emotions and sort of why it did, it brought a very YA angle to it, a very sort of, teen going up growing up going through emotions thing and it, mm. i got very absorbed by the character i became very preoccupied with the exact with, with his exact shifts like brian bendis one of the things he's very good at is this sort of first person narration in the head monologue stuff and he really nailed that sort of angst-ridden teenager peter parker voice and all the ways he reacted to the horrible things that were happening to him in a way that seemed quite plausible so yeah it was I don't know. It's it's it was a a big step for me in being like that. Like it it doesn't get to be the most upsetting comic I've ever read. I'm pretty sure I I cried more over Petricor, but it was <laughs> a point where I I do remember shedding the occasional tear over some of the sadder bits in Ultimate Spider-Man when I was a teen. It was yeah. It's I it's I think possibly possibly because this was when I was about sixteen seventeen. It's possible if I hadn't stumbled across this, I might have I don't know had the sort of late teens, early twenties break from comics. A lot of people seem to have mm. like. I know a lot of people who I've st- who I've spoken to or who I've heard talking about it on podcasts who around the time they got off to university probably. For yes, they got more interesting things to do, like drink pints. Yeah, just yeah, discovered leaving the house or just didn't have the money or the space yeah. to store millions of tiny pamphlets. They just stopped reading comics for a bit and then rediscovered them in their sort of twenties, thirties. But yeah, I'll. Mostly because Marvel put out this sort of wave of work, starting with Ultimate Spider-Man, and there was some other stuff as well, like other Ultimate comics and the Grant Morrison doing his various superhero bits, like New X-Men and that, which did successfully keep me reading comics. I'll be a bit, a few less comics because I was still quite broke, but I did <laughs> manage to skip out on the sort of the break because this comic really sort of hooks me back in quite hard. That's fantastic, and another great uh, memory and something to pull on to remind you that you know um there are plenty of great comics out there and um yeah that it's a fantastic medium yeah let's i mean the yeah i think one of the things i enjoy about also spider-man apart from the the sadness is that it's it went it, it ran for like literally hundreds and hundreds of issues i think bendis may mm. have written it for 200 and something i think 
Wow. I think other, I think other people might have mentioned it on the podcast. Yeah, it was a massive, massive yes. run. It's like book after book after book, and yeah, the sheer and the the sheer amount he put these these poor kids through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I say, I, I I mean, I do also appreciate the value of a good sort of you know seven or eight books, beginning, middle, end, out. But I was I always really liked having that sort of consistent presence of Ultimate Spider Man for all those books, which awesome. is probably one of the reasons it became so ingrained in me at the time. Definitely. And uh, moving on from uh, an absolute classic uh, to what's the most underrated comic that you've read? Uh, most underrated? Uh, I had a few, but the one I settled on was Six Gun Gorilla by Cy Spurrier and Jeff Stokely, uh, which came out about a few years ago, I think, five, five to ten years ago. And yeah, it's a, a revival of an old pulp character. Wherein he's in a sort of, uh, yeah, six gun gorilla, a cowboy gorilla, in this sort of setting where people basically go into this weird world where he lives to try and hunt him for entertainment. And he, he turns out to be, you know, a little bit more than just a monster, they think. And there's a lot of engagement about exactly what it is to, you know, watch people die for entertainment and why exactly you choose to go into this. It's got this sort of. It's got a very strong emotional arc. It's got a lot of meta commentary. Cy Spurrier, as a writer, is very good at this sort of thing. He's currently getting a lot of love for it. For he's doing Hellblazer at the moment, the John Constantine comic, and right. yeah, that's getting a lot of good reviews. And I think it's just been cancelled mm. to great public outcry. But yeah, oh. it's, it's a shame that. But yeah, there's been a lot of outcry, so maybe they'll bring yeah, it back bring somehow. It back. But yeah, it's a, a yeah, deservedly. It's an amazing comic. Cy Spurrier has done a lot of good stuff. He also did a run on. X-Men, an X-Men book, X-Men Legacy, starring the Legion character, which was also, is also one of the great underrated comics, but mm. I think it's recently been adapted for television, or at least elements of it seem to have gone into that Legion show they did. So whether that still counts as underrated, I'm not sure. But yeah, uh, Six Gun Gorilla <laughs> was another book he did at around the same time, and it's one of my sort of low-key favourites. And which publisher is that, sorry? Uh, it's Boom Studios. Uh, so I've done mm. a few books of boom i think most recently he did coda which was also pretty good and then um is it alienated and they were and yeah they were pretty strong but but yeah six gun gorilla was the first thing i sort of read his x-men stuff and then thought okay let's follow this guy on and yeah i was really blown away by this next thing i read <laughs> and it's well it's, it's quite a premise to have kind of a gun wielding gorilla really <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it, it's an image. I mean, as I say, it's an old sort of pulp character who just hadn't been used. But yeah, Jeff yeah. Stokely's art on the gorilla is amazing. So do you know how how old the uh, original character was? No, I don't know exactly how old. Yeah, but it was a, it was an old pulp character. So you know, that's incredible that somebody had come up with that back in the day. <laughs> yeah, I've just googled it and found that someone else did a indie an Indiegogo comic about it last year. So yeah, he's still. Oh, so is it in the public domain or? Yeah, it was published. Yeah, it's public domain now. It was originally right. his appearances were a fifteen-part serial in the British story paper Wizard in nineteen thirty-nine. So yeah, right. Yeah, been a bit around for a while, and yeah, it's Quite just a, a monkey standing up and carrying a gun. Always, always a fun image, isn't it? From from that to Planet of the Apes. <laughs> well, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to go wrong with that. Just as something to draw, really. But yeah, there was a, it's, a, it's a really good sort of involved story around it too. It's great. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, now, we move on to our most difficult question, and that is for you, what is the best comic of all time? Uh, I thought about this a while, and I mean, honestly, it might change tomorrow, but it's one of those questions. But 
for the last few years, it's probably been uh, just the swamp thing run by Alan Moore, which I know is one of the big, the big, the, the common answers. But yeah, honestly, the sort mm. of the weird, the weirdness, the imagination, the sort of genuine horror and switches in mood. I read it over Christmas, naturally, a few years right. ago, <laughs> and yeah, I don't quite remember the last time I was quite as sort of torn up, at, sort of caught up in something, sort of oh, wandering off, running off to read it. Like yeah. there's a someone was on the podcast recently talking about there's a big page turn where someone yells say uncle in this comic and it's mm. that that's a grim one and yeah but I mean, mm. it gets quite a lot of um sort of deserved acclaim for the horror americana stuff in it like a lot of it a lot of first especially like half two-thirds of this run is sort of swamp thing traveling around america experiencing these sort of horrible metaphorical creatures which represent its dark side and yeah, and then in the last chunk of the run, it he it also, it goes a bit more towards superhero cosmic stuff. And there's this amazing issue where he's trapped alone on this blue planet, trying to like interface with its plant life, which is yeah, not not really entirely what the run's known for, but it's also it's still one of the best comics I've ever read. So yeah, I think it's a hard series to go against. Yeah, I could I, I consider choosing something else, but yeah, this this really is pretty fantastic. It was absolutely up there, and it's got the uh, added bonus that, um, of course, he kind of brought it back from the brink. He just kind of, I think he, I think he pitched DC, didn't he, to say, "Oh, I, I want to take Swamp Thing." They're like, "Yeah, sure, go for it, whatever." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that used to happen a lot. I mean, I, I guess it still happens a bit, but yeah, there's a lot of the time where you can get away with a lot more on these characters who are seen as basically defunct or dead or on the verge of cancellation. Like when I mean, Christopher Peace. Christopher Priest brought back Black Panther in the 90s when mm. the character hadn't been used for years and years and was basically seen as this sort of token figure who stood in the background of Avengers shots. And he added right. quite a lot of the the royalty and the sort of Wakandan backdrop that has made the character incredibly popular now. Great. And and yeah, yeah there's a lot you can do if you go into that. Like I've been reading the Peter David Hulk run recently, which again, he took over that character at a point where not a lot of people cared and stayed yeah. on it for 100 issues and made everyone care. So yeah, it's a fun... It's a fun dynamic when that happens. Fantastic. And uh, now we come on to our last question in regards to comics, and that is if you could only take one comic into the apocalypse, which would it be? Uh, although I didn't quite give it funniest, I'm going to give this one to Giant Days, one of the, the great recent comics of our time. This is Giant Days from Boom by John Allison, Max Savin, and I think the early issues are by Lisa Tremaine. And mm. yeah, it's the comic about, yeah, the... Uh, three girls in, at university in Sheffield having a sort of combination of uplifting, growing up experiences, meeting friends, getting into particular circumstances, having long, quippy conversations. Yeah, it's, I think, even more so than the jokes. I think what Giant Days does well is giving you this just sort of warm glow of affection towards the characters and the outside world and a strange, fuzzy belief in the power of friendship. I think if I'm going to be, you know, on a boat alone in the apocalypse, it would be nice to have giant days to make me feel better. Yeah, it would be a nice warm blanket, won't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would be nice to have a literal blanket too, but yeah, I think... Giant yeah, days a literal <laughs> blanket rather than an emotional blanket, sure. <laughs> but yeah, I think giant days would definitely help with, with, my, with my feelings, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and then along with your um, full volumes of uh, giant days, uh, what weapon, tool, or useful item would you like to take with you as well? Well, it is sort of. If I'm attempting to sail to the North Pole and I can't really bring a phone, as I assume the artificial intelligence would track it, mm. I mean, it'd be good to have some kind of map. Although, also, it would be even better to have like a pen and paper, as I feel like this harrowing journey is what something I want to take extensive notes on, just in case I, you know, 
society survives and I can write I can I can write something about it. I feel like it sounds like an amazing experience to document in the event I survive it. One hundred percent. We can certainly supply you with uh, uh, a whole load of pens and papers just to make sure that you're able to uh, document um, the the robot uprising apocalypse. The whole the horrible things that are happening to me. Yeah, and. Not sure what I'll do with it when I get there, but you know. <laughs> well, I'm sure somebody will uh, will pick it up in an archaeological dig in uh, the year 2500 or something. Read it, read it aloud to penguins as I go slowly mad. <laughs> yes, exactly, perfect. Nick. Well, Nick Bryan, thank you so much for sharing your comics through the apocalypse. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. It's been good. Fantastic. And for the listeners, one more time, where can they find you online? Uh, yep, sure. I am Nick MB on Twitter, and I'm also nickbryan.com on Instagram, I think, or at the actual nickbryan.com. You can find a load of my comics to read, and also my epic, my epic fantasy snow crime story, and it snowed, is available now on Kickstarter. Fantastic. And again, those links from the show notes, folks. So go check it out right now, uh, Nick. Hopefully, our paths will cross again when uh, when comic cons get get up and running again. Fingers crossed that'll be next year. Yeah, but I, I live in hope. I had a, I had a table at Fort Bubble, but that'll be a that'll, that'll be a table in my beloved chair now. Yes, yeah, it will be, um, and uh, yeah, no, it'll be interesting uh, to see how that goes virtually. Yeah, certainly fantastic. Well, Nick, thank you so much again for for sharing your comics with the apocalypse, and uh, take care, and hopefully see you soon. Yeah, see you soon. Bye. Thanks, mate. Bye. Thanks again to Nick for being on Comics with the Apocalypse. It was an absolute pleasure. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review for us on iTunes or whichever podcast service you use, as not only will it let me know that you liked it, but believe that it helps make other people aware of the show as well. If you'd like to check out Nick's work or follow him on social media, those links are in the show notes, along with all of our own links to the various areas of the internet. Speaking of which, if you haven't already, be sure to visit Comic Scene Magazine's website at comicscene.org for comic news and other fun sequential art stuff. And finally, as long as the apocalypse doesn't come to pass in the next week, I'll see you next Monday. Bye for now.